Um, thank you, everyone, for coming today. T two quick acknowledgments. First, this is uh, the year anniversary of my father passing away. And so I just want to acknowledge that and introduce him to the space. Um, I'm thrilled to be here. If there's anything that my father, who was a true freedom fighter, activist, professional social worker, would have loved was to be here with us and, and watching me speak, which fortunately I'm fortunate because I have had him had the chance um, many times in my life. Um, the second is my group of students here. I'm actually teaching a class at UMass right now. So my students are like, Clark University? <laughs> like, like, yeah, also I'm teaching a class, Intro to African American History, here at UMass. And so I have the uh, pleasure two or three times a week to come here and, uh, and to talk about 19th century and 18th century African American history. So two, uh, two additions to add. Um, so I ended up writing my talk because I thought it was only 12 minutes. And so I got really nervous, so I sat down all day and write it out. But now that I know I'm 15, maybe I can improvise a little bit more. Um, so anyway, so pardon the reading. It's very unnatural for me to be reading a talk, but it'll hopefully keep me together. And some of my images will help animate uh, what I'm actually trying to do and the, the bigger perspective of, of my research project, which looks at black immigrationism. In 1838, David Ruggles left his role as the editor of the anti-slavery newspaper in New York for the verdant mountains of what we call, call the Pioneer Valley in order to join with a community of people who Professor Bruce, Bruce Laurie has called rebels in paradise. These people were committed to living an anti-slavery life, and this was something that Ruggles most certainly knew about. In New York, Ruggles' home was one where those fleeing from slavery would find a warm blanket hot meal, and advice on how best to go in exile from the slaveholding republic. As Frederick Douglass explained in his blockbuster, that's Ruggles, uh, in his blockbuster autobiography, I was relieved from fear by the humane hand of Mr. David Ruggles, whose vigilance, kindness, and perseverance I shall never forget. I had been in New York but a few days when Mr. Ruggles sought me out and very kindly took me to his boarding house at the corner of Church and Les Bernard Streets. Although scholars of the abolition movement have over the past decade centered black abolitionists like David Ruggles in the history of the struggle against slavery, once dominated by people like William Lloyd Garrison and other holy warriors, those self-emancipated black Americans who fled slavery oftentimes landed in communities like Northampton. Recent histories of the abolition movement um, push well beyond more conventional histories in that they call attention to the role of African Americans and now even more so of escaping slaves who themselves played an important role in shaping the tenor and the, uh, the tone and tenor of the entire abolition movement. Indeed, scholars of abolition have recently taken up this call to move beyond Garrison in order to look more closely at broad and complicated and contradictory struggles to end slavery in the United States and the Atlantic world. Now, I'm not just referencing Professor Bruce Laurie, who's emeritus here at UMass Amherst, um, to suck up to him. I'm not even sure if he's here. Maybe he is. Um, but because I actually first started studying the uh, Northampton Association for Education and Industry in his seminar on anti-slavery in 1999. Um, 
In fact, Professor Lurie encouraged me to dig into the primary sources at Historic Northampton and Forbes Library to see what I could find about this local movement. Soon I focused my research paper on Samuel Hill, who is one of the originators of the movement um, in Northampton, and learned about this incredible experiment in uh, utopian living in my own city in Northampton. Although Professor Laurie traces his own interest to Steve Strymer, who works with me at the Ruggles Center and is a local historian who spent the last 20 years on this, uh, the Northampton Association for Education and Industry has actually become uh, fairly well known kind of besides those who just study slavery. I was shocked, I don't know, if, have people read Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad at all in here? Raise your hand. Oh, wow, only a few. Pulitzer Prize winning and National Book Award, uh, Underground Railroad. He actually um, mentions the Northampton Association or Northampton in this novel, which I thought was, I was pretty surprised. Um, uh, nevertheless, we can be sure that the history of this utopian community of freedom dreamers is a per has a permanent home uh, with the David Ruggles Center, which now is located on 100, uh, 104 Pine Street, which is a stone throw away from the site of the former building that they had. Well, who was David Ruggles, and how did this free-born African-American find himself among the mostly white abolitionists who committed themselves to creating a place free of racism, sexism, classism, religious dogma, or any sort of hierarchy at all? And why in Northampton? For one thing, Northampton remained a crossroads for those traveling from Boston to Albany. It was within range of Springfield that linked Connecticut towns all the way down to New Haven. At the, uh, as the county seat of Hampshire County, Northampton boasted a modest population of more than 4,000 people by the time David Ruggles arrived in the late 1830s. More importantly, Northampton was known as an anti-slavery town, and it became a location on what would come to be known as the Underground Railroad. For these reasons and more, Northampton would have been an attractive haven for a black abolitionist like David Ruggles, seeking to remove himself from the chaos, chaos of New York City for a respite. By the time Ruggles arrived in, in the Northampton Association of Education and Industry in 1843, he had earned a reputation as an anti-slavery stalwart. Raised by free blacks, uh, who thus he had no firsthand knowledge of what fleeing from slavery to freedom was like, nor the daily backbreaking labor described in slave narratives. Ruggles, a true freedom dreamer though, committed himself to the cause in 1833 when he joined with others amidst the nascent anti-slavery movement. Soon he became a prominent newspaper editor of the Mirror of Liberty, a conductor on the Underground Railroad, and an organizer of the Vigilance Committee, a self-defense organization that eschewed non-aggression ideology of other abolitionists, instead embracing the political position of Malcolm X made famous with his phrase, by any means necessary. Ruggles' arrival in what would become known as Florence, now it's called Florence, but back then it was just a part of Northampton, um, in the course of his struggle against slaveholders and slave catchers, which nearly cost him his vision. Encouraged by the prominent abolitionists Lydia Maria and David Childs, Ruggles came to participate in the Northampton Association of Education and Industry, a utopian community that has been written about exclusively in several works, uh, including Christopher Clark's 1995 communitarian moment. Dreams of living cooperatively, non-hierarchically, and free thinking, free labor, 
All of this was a community that Ruggles uh, found himself in. And soon Ruggles established a renowned water cure facility uh, where he participated in hydropathic movement, a belief in the use of soaking oneself with steam and water cloth in order to cure a variety of ailments. Writing to William Lloyd Garrison in 1843, Ruggles explained that, quote, he had a strong desire to be with you, meaning Garrison, in the field, but the stubborn though declining affection of the diaphragm compels me to continue on a furlough. I have sojourned in this delightful region since last fall with a community of practical Christians, the Northampton Association of Education and Industry, which promises to be a paradise. Ruggles was not the only black American who arrived with dreams of living in a free society with others struggling against slavery. In 1843, Sojourner Truth also came with dreams of living in a white and black, in a community of whites and blacks, men and women, and others um, that were a part of this global movement toward cooperative living. The movement, similar to others in New Harmony, Indiana, Brook Farm, outside Boston, Oneida, and central New York, um, all were working towards and making up uh, this global movement towards cooperative living and intersecting with uh, anti-slavery values. Truth worked as a director of laundry, overseeing white and black men, illustrating the sorts of social relations that defied convention even in the quote-unquote liberal Northampton. Although Truth would go on to become an iconic figure in the struggle against slavery, her years with the Northampton Association allowed her to thrive in a community that encouraged her to dictate her own narrative to Olive Gilbert in 1850. What then attracted these black Americans to what Jenny Lind, the Swedish Nightingale, coined, quote, the paradise of America, Northampton. Perhaps Article 5 of the Northampton Association's constitution stood out to those like truth. Quote, the rights of all are equal without distinction of sex, color, or condition, or sect, or religion. Or maybe it was Article 7 that sketched out the sorts of social evils that undermine the human spirit. But did these rebels in paradise really accomplish what they set out to do? Critics point, uh, pointed to the community's system of wage labor and property holding as something that undermined the non-competitive dimension of the venture. Also, some of those attracted to the community resented the disinterest over spreading the light of God through proselytizing. Wasn't the community, after all, seeking to remake on earth a community based on Christian morality? For African Americans, such as Basil Dorsey, Henry Anthony, John Brown, John Williams, and I have a list of a whole bunch of others, I won't read them, uh, the Northampton Association education was a welcome refuge to live out their freedom dreams. For them, it was not the contradictions within the community, nor the dissolution of the formal organization that drove them from this area. So it lasts from about 43 to 40, 42 to 46. Four years after the end of the association, the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 sent slave hunters north into any and all communities that had a reputation for harboring those who lived in exile from the slaveholding South. However, as some fled Northampton um, and also this community, 
Others stood firm, announcing at a public protest meeting in September 1850 that, quote, fugitives from southern slavery had committed no crime save their love of liberty. Despite the dreams that inspired the community, the financial realities, the complex social relations and arrangements that called on all to make sacrifices for the greater good only allowed it to last four and a half years. However, its radical legacy and progressive ideals provide a path, provided a path forward for African Americans who continued to arrive in the area over the course of the century. At one point, one point it boasted 150 African American families, and this number, while modest, represented a larger percentage of African Americans than even the Boston area. Despite his, his enormous contribution to the community, David Ruggles did not live to witness the courageous stance of his African-American brethren against the fugitive slave law in 1850. In December 1849, Ruggles' lifelong intestinal illnesses finally caught up to him, and before a physician could intervene, he died. Over his 39 years, Ruggles praised for his work as an underground railroad conductor, opening the first anti-slavery bookstore in the early 1830s, editing the Mirror of Liberty between 1838 and 1841, founding the New York Community of Vigilance, uh, which preventing blacks from kidnapping, as well as helping them with legal assistance. Although Ruggles was hated by those sympathetic to slavery or found his tactics brash, uh, his store was, born down, uh, was actually burned down a couple times, and he was almost kidnapped and even almost lynched. Those like Frederick Douglass found a true champion of liberty worthy of all the accolades of more well-known freedom fighters then and now. Although Northampton Association of Education and Industry represents a white-led, ideologically driven utopian community that welcomed African Americans and provided an important site for interracial abolition, this, play, this particular location fits within the context of what I'm calling Afrotopias, or black-led utopian-inspired communities that also did exist. Josh Lyles and Sanford Lyles, for example, established a community near the Wabash, White, and Patoka Rivers in southwest Indiana, um, which will end up taking the name Lyles Station. Um, and thrived for 50 years until rivers flooded and the population declined. In Canada, the Elgin Settlement, or Buxton, was started by white abolitionists uh, and 15 of his slaves who moved to Chatham, Ontario, and ended up forming a community there. For some African Americans, Haiti became a, nas a national project in order to establish a community free of racial caste. Um, and in 18, the 1820s, nearly 8,000 African Americans settled in Haiti with dreams of freedom and liberty. Likewise, Liberia fashioned itself as a nation dedicated to freedom as well. All of these places that I mentioned uh, were similar to the sorts of initiative that the Northampton Association tried, but the difference, of course, had to do with African Americans and their part in somehow found, uh, finding them, founding them and then supporting them. Uh, prominent scholar Wilson Jariah Moses writes in his provocative study, Afrotopia, The Roots of African-American Popular History, that the underpinnings of the communitarian movements were actually very important to African-Americans who ended up forming these settlements and communities elsewhere. My own project, uh, my own research project, King Cotton's Exiles, 
uh, abolition slavery and the making of an African-American diaspora interrogates all these questions surrounding both the ideologies that drive black immigrationism and settlement beyond the grip of King Cotton uh, with the actual efforts to try to create harmonious living experiences uh, between those who left the United States and settled elsewhere. My research uh, uh, will take me to Ontario, Mexico, Trinidad, Haiti, Dominican Republic, Liberia, and also England in search of these different African-American immigration efforts and settlements in all those places. As my research shows, 19th century African-Americans, like Ruggles, were political leaders, renegade thinkers, community organizers, uh, who inspired enslaved and ordinary white people to make another world possible. Born in the throngs of an ever-expanding cotton kingdom, ruled by white people with relentless determination to strip Native Americans of land and African people of lab labor, African Americans imagined something more than living in the racist society in which they were born and struck out for a land where their dreams, dreams of freedom could be realized, be it in Latin America, Africa, or in some cases, Europe. Thank you. Okay, so, so what I wanted to talk about today was um, rural hippie uh, communes of the 1970s. Um, so my book is actually about the back to the land movement, which included people, including my parents, um, who did not live communally. Um, but today, in the context of utopia and you know, these ex communal experiments, the hippies of the 1970s um, really represent another uh, one of the most recent kind of like explosion of utopian communitarian um, experimentation after the 1840s. This is the 1970s or the kind of the next big one. Um, and I have to say for young historians in the room, this is a recent history. There's so much to be explored that has not been talked about, has not been looked at. So if there's any part of you that's interested in this, there's such a wealth of um, primary source material that nobody has really looked at yet. So. Keep that in mind. Um, and this area had tons of hippie communes in it that had all, all kinds of crazy things going on. Um, so I'm just gonna talk about a couple. The one pictured here is the one that's um, in my book. Uh, in the book, I call it Myrtle Hill. Um, and they were in northern Vermont. Um, so the definition of hippie commune is a little hard to nail down. Um, there, they were, um, there were many experiments going on of different kinds, collectives, spiritual communities, all kinds of different, um, you know, similar kinds of uh, collective living experiments. But one of the things I think that, that um, uh, makes something a hippie commune as opposed to something else was a really a kind of like a wide openness. They were rejecting a lot of conventions and inventing, trying to reinvent a lot of different things all at the same time, this kind of like, you know, mad experimentation going on. Um, they were rethinking family, economy, um, how economics should work, ecology, technology, similar to these experiments at other times, although um, really with kind of, they, they really wanted the, as few rules in a lot of cases as they could, they could have. They wanted a lot of freedom in a lot of cases. Um, and they were kind of, um, uh, there, there were so many different communes of different kinds that there was really like a, a large diversity of different projects, but not 
particularly a diversity of participants, which I think is really interesting. So unlike, for example, the kibbutz, it was wide open to anybody who wanted to join, and yet the people who were attracted to it, who ended up in huge numbers, not 100%, but overwhelmingly, tended to be white and well-educated and from um, affluent or middle-class backgrounds. So it's a really interesting case to look at where there's this sort of like utopian thinking, expansive imagination that kind of still ends up with a pretty narrow demographic of people who are practicing it. And so that to me raises really interesting questions that I kind of want to, um, we could talk about this for hours, but just to run through a couple ways in which um, the, the sort of the privilege of the participants in this movement both, um, you know, led to the experimentation, but also allowed for them to make their utopian dreaming into a reality and were intention in interesting ways. Um, so one of the things, it's really hard to know, everyone wants to know numbers about communes, and it's really tricky. Basically, nobody can count them. Even at the time, people couldn't count them. Um, it was definitely in the thousands. Um, some people think, certainly the participants were in the tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands. Um, nobody really knows, because there was so much moving around and people switching, and the communes would switch names. And so even at the time, people couldn't count. People are trying to count now, they can't, they're having a hard time. But one of the things that is known that I think is really interesting is that the heyday was very short. It did not last that long, actually. Um, and this is, this is a sort of dorky graph from, but these are numbers from, a, from somebody who's collecting figures, a contemporary scholar at the time. And he found three in 1965. And then by 1968, there are 100. And then by 1970, there are thousands. And he sort of put it at 3,000, but he, was, he admitted he was guessing. And then pretty quickly after that, the numbers start to fall off again. Um, so it probably doesn't drop in a straight line down to 1975, but by 1975, the numbers are already coming down again. Um, so that's really interesting. It's a really short heyday, very intense, super intense experimentation. Um, and it raises, again, a couple of questions. So one of the questions I want to just you know, think about in here today is why was the demographic so narrow? It's very specific, it's very narrow. Why? What's, what's up with that? Um, and the, one of the other questions was why didn't more of them last? And to me, when you look at both of these questions through a lens of privilege, it, it sort of reveals insights that in some ways are completely obvious, but in other ways kind of um, you know, highlight sort of unusual um, you know, the underpinnings of this kind of utopian dreaming in interesting ways. So, um, let's see here. So, clearly the 19, those dates for people will look familiar. We're in 50th anniversaries of a lot of um, things from the 1960s. The political turmoil, the social turmoil, the counterculture, all of this is happening absolutely at this time period. And those are kind of the immediate conditions that sort of send um, this group of young people looking for peace and um, new kinds of experimental ways of living where they can feel safe, where they can invent, they're worried about the future, they want to have control over the future, and that sends them, um, in a lot of cases, to the countryside. And those are the kind of immediate conditions. But I'm also interested in just the generation itself, because the more I read about the thinking that kind of led people to communes, the more their childhood seemed to play into it to me. And so we're talking about... <laughs> The, you know, this is the baby boom generation, so I'm the, this is like the most generic, like, hello, 1950s that I could find. Um, and so if we, if we sort of look at this as kind of like an image of um, this Eisenhower era prosperity that this 
group, these privileged young people um, are growing up with this, with a you know, generational confidence coming out of this time period that's telling them in every way it knows how to tell them, you are, we're at the apex of the American economy, you are, you know, the world is fantastic, you should inherit it, everything is fine. And then, at the same time, they're going to school during the Cold War and they're being taught to duck and cover. <laughs> Just heard. <laughs> when the Q&A comes, we can ask them about that. Um, you know, and so at the same time as there's one message of confidence, you should feel like the future is yours, you should feel like you can have everything you want, at the same time it's like, yeah, but also get under your desk because you'll be safe there from a bomb. And a lot of people um, told me when I was talking to um, people who did this kind of radical experimentation that they noticed that as kids and it sort of had an effect on them, both of thinking like, okay, there's no way we're safe under a desk, so first of all, that's crazy. And then second of all, also having the feeling that the adults wouldn't even admit that it was crazy, and that that made them feel like they were gonna have to take care of things themselves, and that they kind of carried that with them into adulthood. And so to me, when I thought about this generation, and kind of like what, you know, in addition to all of that other political stuff, this tension between this confidence, this generational we can do it confidence, and then this really intense apocalyptic fear kind of comes together in a, you know, in a, a potent way, and it kind of leads to this explosive experimentation. Um, and so, kind of thinking about that tension, one of the parts that I wanted, you know, that there's this tremendous rebellion, to go back to this picture, in a lot of ways, <laughs> um, this kind of like perfect 50s picture was the antithesis. So, the, so in this rebellion, the counterculture in general, but particularly in communes, was trying to throw out throw this out in every single way they could think of. They wanted no part of the nuclear, you know, they were the nuclear family. People said, oh, the nuclear family was the cause of all of our unhappiness. We were not gonna live in a nuclear family. We're not gonna live in the suburbs. We were not gonna live in conditions where the only tree is being carefully trimmed. We're gonna live in as close to wilderness as we can get. We're not gonna eat hot dogs. Um, they sort of tried to undo the patriarchal system with medium success. Um, and I should also say that one of the other tensions for, again, this um, group, the group that ended up being kind of like largely white and affluent, the tension between those things too, they kind of half recognized it, but sort of um, was, it was the aggressive whiteness of this was something that they pushed against but couldn't quite, in a lot of cases, um, see their way all the way around. And it led to quite a lot of like cultural appropriation where they were trying to try on identities that to them seemed not white but were of course totally based in their own whiteness. So there's so all kinds of elements here are what the communes are trying to push against. And so here we have, this is um, Myrtle Hill and here's their house. It is not shaped like a house. It's a geodesic dome. It's made out of scrap wood and um, these are actually car tops that they went to junkyards and cut off with an ax, cut off the tops of cars. Um, which does not work as a housing material in northern Vermont. I'm just going to go ahead and say. Um, it's not a nuclear family. Um, this baby here, um, Lorraine, is the main character in my book. And this baby was deliberately, she deliberately conceived this baby as a communal baby. She um, wanted the baby to belong to the commune. So they're trying out all of these different radical um, family forms and trying to, you know, really trying to experiment in every way that they can. Um, with, with sort of different kinds of success. So um, I just really quickly want to talk through like a couple of different kinds of the you know, ways in which this, the privilege was intention. 
um, that they, people, that, the way it was recognized and not recognized, and that it was something that allowed for a lot of experimentation, but also in its unrecognized ways kind of contributed to um, the ability to be doing this radical experimentation in ways that they didn't fully always acknowledge. Um, so I'm just going to, um, um, we could talk about this forever, but to go quickly, um, this is Timothy Leary's mansion. In, it wasn't his mansion. It was lent to him by one of his um, uh, acolyte, who was an, uh, an heir to this mansion. And, um, and so one, one kind of privilege clearly is just wealth. Like, how do you get a communal house big enough for everyone to live in? How do you um, feed 20 people who are living in that house? And so a lot of communes were funded by the actual wealth of some of the participants, either in the form of inheritance or in the form of trust funds. Um, and uh, even when, um, this is Myrtle Hill again, and so the, their first year they lived in these very austere conditions. But I would argue that even when um, they weren't living in a mansion. When groups weren't living in a mansion, the, there was a kind of consciousness in the back of the minds of people doing, taking these radical experiments that they knew that if they got too cold, they could go home again. And in fact, at Myrtle Hill, that is what happened a couple times. They, they built their own houses and they were cold. And then um, huge numbers of people just took off because they knew that they, could go, they had the means to go somewhere else. So they weren't reliant on the, um, they weren't as reliant on the community as they thought they were going to be. Um, one of the other, I think this is another one of the communes that I talk about, this is um, Entropy Acres, and uh, this, they were really committed to um, an ecological way of farming. They were really early pioneering organic carrot farm, um, and they were committed to using horse-drawn materials. They were, they were very romantic relationship with 19th century technology. Um, and, you know, for the, it sort of worked, but when they found a market for their, they were really one of the early drivers of the market for organic foods, but in this particular case, um, the connection that they made that allowed them to sell their organic carrots was made through, like, a business connection, a business connection of um, Elliot's uh, father-in-law. And so even when the, the economics model is different and they're doing this radical experimentation, sometimes it also is counting on, you know, the mainstream economics models. And I should also say the horse and wagon were also bought with money from a trust fund as well. So they were able to get capital to do this experimentation. Um, this is from Mad Men. I don't know if anyone saw this episode. <laughs> it's a really good episode. Roger, Roger up here, his daughter joins a commune. Um, and I included it because it kind of shows in the aesthetics of the clothes the contrast that a lot of counterculture people, not just living on communes, were trying to make between um, what, the, the, what their parents looked like as far as self-presentation and what they looked like. And one of the reasons I chose it, and I can't tell if you can see here, but the, um, this guy over here, his pants are filthy and they're sort of ostentatiously dirty. And it reminded me of a story that Elliot told me um, this, that he told me at one point of going to a town meeting in northern Vermont. Um, it's a scene in the book, but uh, they, and noticing that the, all of the people who were there, the hippies who were farming and then the local people who were farming had all been doing the same work all day, um, but that the local people had come completely, had taken off all their work clothes and put on their pristine city clothes, or, you know, town, sorry, village clothes, um, and the hippies just came filthy. Um, and that he was noticing that um, part of, that for them, they were proud of that dirt because it was in contrast to the way that their parents looked when they were working. Um, and that it didn't represent 
they weren't worried that people were going to think they didn't have control over their lives. Um, and for the local people, many of them had worked their whole life to afford to have their indoor shower, and it meant something completely different to them. Um, and so that, that kind of like self-presentation was also you know, their, their own class inherent sense of who they were in society and what they were worried about, what they were worried about other people would think of them, um, kind of carried into these aesthetic choices that they were making. Um, I just and so, just the last couple ones here. So this is a group in Oregon. This is a famous picture from Life magazine. Um, and so this, you know, these family structures, so the communal family structures, it still tends to be, not 100%, um, but it still tends to be quite heteronormative and quite, you know, um, there are definitely um, queer-identified groups and surely out people within specific communities. But I just felt like it needed mentioning that as communes stop living communally, they stop being households among themselves, one of the things that happens when the, those numbers start to go down is that they get absorbed in the local communities again. And um, one of the ways that that transition happens smoothly is that the people in the local community kind of see them not as subversive, but they can see them as, you know, that their eccentricities are eccentricities, not as something um, that is uh, actually, you know, threatening to whatever the conception of the, the way of life is for the local people. And, it, and it, I should include in that also clearly whiteness is part of that as well. So at Myrtle Hill, um, the project that they went into after their commune was a health food store. And again, it's really one of the pioneering reasons that we're, that the, you know, the amazing food that you have, you know, that we have here, all those organic products. Um, this was one of the pioneering experiments that made that possible, but it was also made possible, and the success of it was made possible because of the mutual whiteness of the local people and the communes, so their acceptance of each other. Um, should I stop there? Okay. Um, okay, well, then I'll, I'll stop there and we'll leave it at that. Thank you very much. Any case, maybe let's start with the, the song. So the, the lyrics are Bulawayo, 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 Kunakong, Kong, Kong, Kong. And it means jump, jump, jump the fence of injustice. And so it starts with a kind of a heartbeat. Asking you to join me there. Should work. I have the same act.
And perfect timing, and thank you so much for coming to the rescue. Wasn't you. <laughs> it's like every day in my class. <laughs> Almost. Almost. And so, yeah, jump the fence of injustice. Um, I am the womb of a womb of a womb in a womb of a womb in a womb of a womb in a womb of a womb until I reach the womb from which we've all come. And there are fences and walls and this government has been separating children from their parents for generations. And for generations, my people have been navigating life here as a people stolen from land, brought to a stolen land, under a government whose vision of liberty and justice never included us. About 400 years ago, the first slave ship arrived and a man given the name John Castor was legally recorded as the first person to be ruled property for life. And that happened here. And the slave codes that were written in, and because slave codes were written by state in various states have intentionally, and I say have because in some ways some of those things are just translated or transformed and, and still, still are in action in different ways, but intentionally and legally humiliated and oppressed black and indigenous people, making it illegal for them to read or write, illegal for them to travel without explicit written permission, making it illegal for them to uh, bear arms or practice any form of self-protection or self-defense, making it illegal for them to own any property at all, ever, or to le legally marry. And in fact, rejecting slavery was punishable by death. My people were prevented from assembling in groups without being in the presence of a white person. That happened here. And our black bodies were completely commodified, offered as prizes and raffles and wages and gambling and as security for debts. That happened here. And so I um, want to start by just sharing a little, I'm trying to figure out how do I go. Yeah, perfect. A little bit more about myself, and I'll try to move a little faster, <laughs> catch up time. And my ancestry and history and my people's history on the land. So my whole life, I was born and raised in Philadelphia. My whole life I've been raised and living and working in what would be considered Lenape Hokan, Lenape land. So I was raised and born and raised in Philadelphia. I um, migrated to New York for undergrad first. I went to Sarah Lawrence College in Bronxville, New York. I transitioned from Sarah Lawrence to 
um, Brooklyn, Crown Heights, and then made a home and co-founded an intentional home um, that's woman-led and cooperatively owned and managed Brownstone and Bedsty, and then from there have transitioned to co-found Wild Seed Intentional um, community, heal, community Farm and Healing Village on 180 acres in Millerton, New York, which is in the Mid-Hudson Valley of New York. And so my folk are mixed Igbo, Akan, Senegambian, Lenape tribes, according to my great-great-grandmothers. Um, my folk have been, you know, my, my sites of origin are New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Tennessee, and the Carolinas. All really, you know, all significant historical places for my story that really informed my life. Um, you know, so the Lenape occupied Turtle Island for over 20,000 years before white colonization. And the Lenape of all the indigenous tribes were known as mediators and peacekeepers. They held the title of the grandparent tribe because of the way that they carried themselves. And so it's appropriate and interesting that the Lenape were the first to sign treaties with the US government. Um, and just to take a step back to the Igbo, are, you know, are documented throughout the Caribbean and the United States as being a particularly rebellious group of Africans, particularly rebellious and suicidal. And there's a site in Georgia, Igbo Landing, um, where my ancestors would rather die than live in slavery. And they literally, they, the slave ship arrived, the ship captains were dead, the people were chained to each other, and they looked and they said, where are we? And we would rather go back into the ocean than to plant ourselves here. And this is who I am, this is my blood, these are my, these are my stories, these are my people. Um, Virginia, you know, is known as the tobacco state, but was also known in the slave industry as a slave breeding state. It was a place where Literally, people were chained and forced to reproduce, where a, a woman in, in, in the state of Virginia in this slave breeding industry might give birth to 14 to 20 children who she never got to raise and literally spend her life being impregnated and giving birth. These are my people. Tennessee, um, you know, my, my great-great-grandparents on my father's side is the site of the first Jim Crow laws and the birthplace of the Ku Klux Klan. So that's all the history that I'm walking with. I mean, that's just me, one person, one part of co-founding this work and creating this space. And I'm Jasmine Burems, also known as Jasmine Red Electric Genesis. I am an herbalist. And I am an energy healer and a farmer and a birth doula. I'm an artist. I'm a queer mother of a brilliant black free woman child named Nirvana, who's here. I'm a loving partner to King Aswad, and I am a serial cooperative entrepreneur. Some of my work is Wild Sea Community Farm and Healing Village, and the Institute of Afrofuturist Ecology, Claudine Worker Owner Cooperative, Pharmistic Music Duo, Harriet's Apothecary, and Honey and Gold 
where I create self-care rituals for wellness, beauty, and pleasure. And I guess these aren't going up. Any case, um, I mean, let me share more about Wild Seed. Oh yeah, I was trying to get these going for you guys. They go pretty quickly. So Wild Seed is a black and brown led uh, community that is feminine centered and queer centered. Um, we are people of color led intentional community and we intend to be a permanent safe space, a permanent sanctuary for people historically disenfranchised from land stewardship, from um, righteous and balanced relationship to work and land, um, from um, economic justice, um, food justice, and um, from practicing our own you know, spiritual ways and food ways, ways of living and being. Um, I think, so this gift, this is a gift, 181 acre million dollar gift to us, which is phenomenal. And this happened, I'd say this really started, I'm going off script now and I'll mark myself. Um, this really, I think this really started about 10 years ago. We were all on different paths doing different work. You know, some of us were learning to farm, some of us were learning about radical wealth redistribution and the just economy using the movement generations framework. Some of us were touring and, and um, you know, post Hurricane Katrina, you know, doing um, environmental racism work. Some of us were doing witchy goddess circles and meditation and moon rituals. Um, and some of us were informed by the Zapatista movement and establishing intentional community in other parts of the world. And so Wild Seed is just one of many pockets of resistance. And our vision is to bridge with a regional, national, global, land-based regenerative movement that's really about nurturing people. Um, our collaborative work is guided by the following principles, living the world we dream of, dignity and self-determination, healing present and ancestral trauma, ecological guidance and reverence for the earth, communal intimacy and interdependence, radical imagination and courageous artistry, liberatory ec economics, I think we made that word up, um, transformative and restorative justice, accessibility and inclusivity, movement building and education and intergenerational responsibility. Wondering if I missed anything in here. Um, yeah, it's all about creating a space for us to build skills and share our resilience practices and arm ourselves to face a world that uh, obviously doesn't want to see us, <laughs> you know, enjoy. You know, there's a lot of um, a lot of opposition, a lot of reason to be paralyzed in grief. You know, and I, I feel that black joy is really a miracle. You know, I, I love black comedians and, you know, I love to see the miracle of joy in the face of all the trauma that we are re-triggered by every day. When you watch the news and you see what's going on today, 
you know, and how similar it is to what was going on in 1609 and in 1970 and, you know, through the 90s and so on. Um, here's some of our community structure. So, let's see, I wonder, I think I'll skip that for now. Some of our organizing activities, maybe. Um, and so, let's see, we do some resiliency skill sharing. We host a lot of different social justice-based groups, and we do a lot of leadership development training, and we really just create a safe and welcoming and warm space, you know, where folks' needs and their identities are centered, you know, folk who are typically at the, who are typically marginalized and who are typically living in the fringes of, in, of multiple, multiply oppressed identities at that. Um, regenerative movement building, um, youth programming. We do a youth rights of passage program. We have some proposals for some more youth development programs. Um, I'm particularly really interested in servicing youth who are aging out of, youth of color who are aging out of the foster care system. Um, and as well as specifically queer youth of color who are aging out of the foster care system, um, as well as you know, sort of STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, robotics, language, you know, immersive, land-based, incredible, you know, um, interdis interdisciplinary camps for youth. You know, we're really nourishing and nurturing the future. Um, we use maple sugaring. Maple sugar was a major, you know, had a major, uh, played a major role in the abolitionist movement, anti-slavery abolitionism. Um, and so, you know, maple sugar was promoted as an alternative to slave plantation sugar. And, and so we use the foods that we grow as a tool for organizing. Uh, this is all very dense, and I think that what I'd like to highlight here, you know, I'm sort of mapping out, and I'd love to share more if I have a chance later, but I don't think I will now. Um, just sort of the timeline of black land ownership and in, in, in these timelines that I created, it's sort of paralleled along with um, indigenous folks being pushed off of the land. And so it's sort of paralleling both, you know, what's happening to the, the, Lenape, the, the Lenape tribe specifically and the African slaves who were brought over. And so in 1865, um, we have the Emancipation Proclamation, four million kidnapped black folk are allegedly let free. Same year, this General Howard was given the duty of going into the Sea Islands, into Adisto Island, and telling 2,000 black folk that they actually have to give their land that they just got back. No, never, can't do it. Why would you take away our lands? We want homesteads. We were promised homesteads by the government. If it does not carry out the promise of its agents made to us, the, the, out the promise that 
its agents made to us, we are left in a more unpleasant condition than our former as slaves. You will see this is not the condition of really freed men. And so President Johnson basically revoked and, and uh, you know, reneged on the promise of 40 acres and a mule. And then decades of sharecropping and persevering and jumping through loopholes and still and doing your best and still sometimes being not enough, um, that happened. And even still, African Americans purchased and saved land, you know, despite the, you know, purchased, saved money and purchased land, despite the obstacles. Um, by 1910, we have the peak of black land ownership. We had increased to 218,972 farms, nearly 15 million acres, about 14% of the nation's farmland. And I just want to flash forward to today, in 2018, we have less than 1% of the nation's farmland, and there's 2.3 million people in prison, and one in 15 black men is currently behind bars, and one in 13 is deprived of the right to vote due to felony conviction. And for those of us raised in the mass incarceration era, one in four of us has had a parent who has been locked up at some point in our childhood. And, you know, I also shared in this timeline, and maybe I'll get a chance to come back to it a little, with a little bit more space, sort of the ebb of the prison industrial complex as it, you know, as it parallels to the ebb of um, land ownership and indigenous displacement. 40 acres and a unicorn. <laughs> you know, um, Malcolm X says land is the basis of all independence. Land is the basis of freedom, justice, and equality. And in 2009, President Barack Obama signed a bill um, appropriating $1.25 billion for a lawsuit in, 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 okay, so let me go back. The USDA and the FHA were strategically cheating black folk out of their land. So something happened between 1910 and 2018. There were a series of campaigns like the war on drugs and um, campaigns, political campaigns that artificially criminalized African Americans. And so we have people being put in jail and losing their property. We have people leave, fleeing the terrorism of lynching and Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan and literally leaving land that they could have inherited, you know, between 1916 and 1970, 6.5 million black folk moved from the South to inhabit urban centers. And so a lot has informed <laughs> um, our movement and the way that we go about um, building our movement. Um, one thing is that we're not a weird cult in the woods. <laughs> You know, we, I don't know, I don't know if we can afford to be, I guess we can be pretty hippie, you know, we could be pretty crunchy, 
Maybe there's a little bit of free love and some polyamory going on. <laughs> um, but for the most part, we are all activist artists and educators who are committed to passing something forward for the seventh generation. And there's a lot of obstacles to overcome. Finances is one of them. You know, we're people who have been traumatized, and so building trust in real time is another one. And, um, you know, intentional communities don't have a very high success rate. And so just like preserving the land and functioning in a way that's self-determined and preserving the land and trust um, as a resource for future generations feels like a key, you know, regardless, I don't want to link it to a mission or a nonprofit that is useful to us only now, you know, we have to make this something that is useful and flexible enough to meet the needs of a people we will never ever meet. And so, here's Wild Seed. Um, there's five of us who are core collective and we have lots of commuting members and volunteers who serve on our uh, seed pods. That's King planting a fig tree. Some of the flowers were growing. Some of the food were growing. How we define a POC-led and centered community. And uh, as we face the next three years, governed by a president propped up on a pedestal of white supremacy, capitalism, misogyny, and violence, the autonomous, self-determined oasis that Wild Seat provides is more important than ever. And so thank y'all for listening. Please try to support us and thank you.